ಜೀವನಂ ಕವಿಭೀರೀರಿತಮಶಾಪಹಂ ಶ್ರವಣಮಂಗಲ ಶ್ರೀಮದಾತ ಭುವಿ ಗ್ರಂಥಿಂಗ್ ವಿತ್ ಸೆಕ್ಷನ್ ವೇರ್ ವಿ ಫೈನ್ ಶ್ರೀ ರಾಮಕೃಷ್ಣ ಇಸ್ ವಿಸಿಟಿಂಗ್ ವಿದ್ಯಾಸಾಗರ್ and the conversation between vidyasagar and ramakrishna is going on it's almost like a deliberation that's going on as far we see ramakrishna's conversation it's a quite long conversation he is speaking like one is an inspired so we saw that in the last class he was indicating the state of a vigyani and after realization when you come back when we come back when one comes back from realization he is a totally transformed person he may still continue to exist in this phenomenal world but his attitude his way of interaction with the world we find there is a total transformation in that as he was indicating that one cannot stay in that realization for long he comes down from that there are some who merges in samadhi who leaves who just like a dried leaf fall off and give up their body in samadhi there are few such cases but we find that many are illumined soul after realization have came back again to this world of name and form but the way they are interacting with the world has totally changed because they have seen the reality and they are no more lured by the projection that story of the five cave men we can relate in this respect the plato's famous story of the five cave men the five cavemen were enchained from their very life in such a way that they could they could see only the wall of the cave they were all seated with their back on the entrance of the cave and they could just see the wall of the cave they couldn't turn their head and outside the cave there was a road on the side of the cave by the road on the side of the cave there was the uh, the people the people were all traveling that was a road for going to the marketplace from the village so throughout the day it was busy on the other side of the road away from the cave there was some fire the fire always was lit 
there was something like campfire was always there on the other side of the road. So naturally, when anyone is to pass through that road, because of that fire, the shadow will fall on the cave of the one. The fire is there, the road is there, and the other side of the road, the cave is there. And on the entrance of the cave, these five cavemen are sitting with their back on the entrance and they're looking at the wall. And they have been chained in such a way they can look only at the wall. So what they see throughout the day is only the shadows and they hear the noise. A lot of noise of the carts, the horse carriage, the people walking down the road, all those they could hear and the shadows they could see. As from the very beginning of their birth, from the very inception of their birth, they were enchained in that way. To them, that was the reality. That's what they were seeing throughout their life. Now, one of the cavemen was released. The chain was opened and he came out of the cave and he was amassed. He ran and saw this wide world with light, with scenery, the sun, the moon, the stars, the huge vegetation, the mountains, the rivers. He was ecstatic in joy. He ran for quite a long time just viewing the panorama of the entire existence. And then suddenly the thought came, let me go back and relate to the four cavemen that what they are seeing is just the shadow. That's not real. Let me go and relate it to them. So when he came back and related to the other four cavemen who were still enchanted, that see what you're seeing is just the shadow. There's a huge world, wide expanse, scenic with all the planets, stars, the moon, the vegetation, the mountains, the rivers. These four cavemen thought he has gone mad because they couldn't relate to his experience. But now you will understand that after the realization, if you, even if you come back, that why we say you are transformed, you can no more think the shadows to be the reality. The reality is something which is projected as the shadow. And as we have, we are from our childhood, from our very birth, are habituated in seeing that shadow, the projection, we take it to be real. The realized soul after realizing that when they come back, they are totally transformed person. They now know the truth. And that was indicated by Ramakrishna as we read in the last paragraph in the previous class. Let us just read that before we proceed with our discussion. A man cannot live on the roof a long time. He comes down again. Those who realize Brahman in Samadhi come down also and find that it is Brahman that has become the universe and its living beings. In the musical scale, there are the notes Sa, Re, Ga, Ma, Padha and Ni. But one cannot keep one's voice on the knee a long time. The ego does not vanish altogether. The man coming down from Samadhi perceives that it is Brahman that has become the ego, the universe, and all living beings. This is known as Vijnana. So 
for him he is looking at the same world but he knows that it is a projection of the reality it is a superimposition on that reality which is appearing as the universe so it cannot bind him anymore he is a jivan mukta purusha though he is living he is free that's example of sri swami vivekananda is very important is very significant to relate to this discussion that he says that as a wandering monk he was passing through the desert he was thirsty he was in search of water and then suddenly he saw a huge reservoir at a distance he started proceeding towards it and suddenly it vanished the reservoir with its reflection of water the trees he it appeared to be an oasis but suddenly he saw it's vanished and then the thought came then the realization came oh from the childhood i have heard i would realize i have heard i have read in the textbook about mirage so it was a conceptual knowledge but today it has become a realization i know what mirage is once you realize the next day when again swamiji say i am passing through the desert it is this, again the mirage appears again the, this reservoir appears it's not that it won't appear anymore as you have realized it appears but today he knows for certain that it's a mirage it's just something which has been superimposed on the desert and what's the result it cannot drag him the previous day taking it to be real he was dragged towards it today it cannot drag the attachment has fallen off so now the reaction has changed the stimuli response has changed the same thing to which he was responding through attachment for that a spontaneous detachment has come because he knows what he is seeing is in no way going to affect the reality what is the reality the desert is the reality on which this reservoir is being superimposed that huge reservoir which we see as the mirage does it has the capacity to even drench a single sand particle no such a huge reservoir we are seeing that reservoir doesn't have the power to drench even a single sand particle so that's the idea that when you realize that the universe is being superimposed on the self the real self which is the core of my being you know it for certain it is a mere superimposition it in no way can affect me just the way the water i see in the reservoir cannot in a way drench the sand the snake which i see in the rope in no way can inflict uh, poison can inflict poison or venom in the rope can it do no it cannot similarly the impo- the thing imposed has no effect on the reality knowing that he moves around the world as living free though living he's free so that's the beauty of the upanishads of vedanta he doesn't speak of freedom after death here here itself in this life it can be realized and that's the goal of human life to reach that state of vigyana to reach the state of jivan mukti as has been spoken of by shankaracharya in vivek churamani that what's the aim of human life jivan mukti sukha prapti 
हे तवे जन्मधारण जीवन मुक्ति सुख प्राप्ति द रियल सुख प्राप्त वी कैन अटेन रियल सुख रियल हैपीनेस वेन वेन वी अटेन दैट स्टेट ऑफ जीवन मुक्ति एंड फॉर दैट इज द ह्यूमन बर्थ हे तवे जन्मधारण if we think that for the sensual enjoyment this human birth is we are mistaken with all our technology with all the amenities which the modern science has given us we cannot enjoy the senses the sensual uh, objects the sense uh, our in- indulgences sensual indulgences the way the animal enjoys the senses of the animals are much much keen much intense than the human being with all our progress with all our science can we smell as a dog can we relish a meal the way an a dog a cat relish they have extra sensory perceptions as per in relative to our senses are concerned the way the birds can hear they can hear very very low frequency for a long is noise which is like sitting here i can i cannot hear the rumbling of the noise of the waves of the ocean but a pigeon sitting in the east ringwood east can hear the rumbling of the waves of the ocean that's why even for our investigation purpose we use the dogs their sense is so keen with all our science with all our technology we can never enjoy the world the way the animal enjoys if we think that the human birth is for the sensual pleasures we are wrong for that animal birth birth is much better animal birth is much better as a human being the faculty of realizing the re- the real nature behind the existence of which this is just a mere shadow a mere projection that's only possible as a human being no other creature can do that that's the uniqueness of a human being that's why sri ramakrishna in some other place very nicely have defined human being in bengali the human being is called manush manush in hindi it is manav in hindi it is manush now he ramakrishna is to break that word it is grammatically not correct but in his own way in his own unique way he used to say manush means man plus hush manush man in sanskrit in all indian language means value man hush in all other indian languages in hindi it means hosh awareness so as a human being we have certain man certain uniqueness certain value unless we have hosh awareness of it though we may look like human being we are not human being so we have to have the hosh of those specific man which defines us as a human being and if we have that then there is no other way than to pursue to know the the pursuit for knowing the real nature behind the entire existence behind my psychophysical existence that becomes the priority in our life and as per that priority if we are fortunate enough to reach that goal know it for certain the 
purpose of human birth is solved is met we meet the purpose we get the fulfillment this kritakritya this in sanskrit these words are so interesting you become a kritakritya means what has to be done kritya you have done krita krita kritya you have done what has to be done all other things are useless they are secondary i won't say useless they have certain practical implications as per our present state of existence is concerned but as per our eternal existence is concerned it has no value so unless we take care of that the human birth has no use it is useless we have wasted that so that's the thing sri ramakrishna is indicating through his discussion so now let us proceed to the next paragraph sri ramakrishna is continuing with his deliberation the path of knowledge leads to truth as does the path that combines knowledge and love the path of love too leads to this goal the way of love is as true as the way of knowledge all paths ultimately lead to the same truth but as long as god keeps the filling of ego in us it is easier to follow the path of love so this is the thing which sri ramakrishna will be indicating again and again that in kolite narodiyo bhakti in this yuga in this age narada's bhakti the bhakti has just been defined by narada that's the way that's the that's the way for this age why because see here that all the lines are very important all paths ultimately lead to the same truth and when we reach the truth as long as god keeps the filling of ego in us that ego is the very important factor as long as the ego is there we can never realize the truth the moment the ego falls off we are identified with the truth as very interesting when someone is asked sri ramakrishna when shall i be free ramakrishna's answer was when i cease to be that i within inverted comma when i cease to be this feeling that i am this limited psychophysical existence ego that i this limited existence is what speaks of our ego identification with our psychophysical existence is our ego when i cease to be that falls off that's the what you say the clue that's the only point which takes us to that's the only thing which can take us to the realization in any way uh, it may be by the way of knowledge or it may be by the way of devotion that ego has to fall off now how the ego falls off as we have discussed so many time once that non dual consciousness the non local consciousness which alone is the reality gets identified with the psychophysical existence maybe it's a microbe maybe it's a human body this it what happens the non local becomes local and once it becomes local now the ignorance starts what that behind that 
limited psychophysical existence, the ego is always heard that you are eternal. Suppose I am standing in front of a mountain and I am shouting my own name. Because of ego, what, uh, uh, what will be the realization? As if someone is calling me from the mountains. Similarly, the self is constantly saying I'm eternal. That gets echoed through this limited psychophysical existence. And you, that delusion is that the body is saying I'm eternal. You get identified with that. And now I try to realize the eternity in that psychophysical existence. And that's from that ignorance, the entire biological evolution has proceeded in our attempt to realize the eternity in this psychophysical existence. And at last, as a human being, we have that faculty to go beyond that ignorance. Oh, what I'm actually doing, I'm already eternal. The echo which I'm hearing is not the body-mind, is not what we're speaking. It is just the echo. The one who is saying is already eternal. In my ignorance to realize that eternity through that body-mind, I was just trying through the entire process of biological evolution. So in Vedanta, biological evolution is accepted. But what is not accepted, it is not an in eternal infinite growth like in a straight line. It is actually cyclic. As a human being, when we are at the apex of biological evolution, we have developed the faculty to realize that it is out of ignorance. I am listening from my body-mind that it is eternal and I am trying to realize it that it has to stop. I am already eternal. This attempt is of no use. I am already the same eternal being. So now you will understand this falling off of the ego is the only thing which speaks of spiritual evolution, whatever may be the path. In jnana, what we are doing, we are trying to develop Brahma Kara Vritti. The moment you say, I am Brahman, what you are doing? The jnani, when he is saying, I am Brahman, he is negating the idea that he is this limited psychophysical existence. And that negation is like hammering at the hub of the will. Because all our likes, dislikes, our fight and flight response, dvesha, abhinivesha, our attachments, raga, with which we have developed so many desires, so many mental modules, all are hinged to this ego. And now you with the Brahmakara Vritti, you are constantly hammering that. In this life, if we try to get rid of a single desire, the other desires are still there to hold on to my limited individuality, my limited psychophysical existence. But if I can take out the hub, all the so-called this uh, desires, so many mental modules, all collapses together. So to get rid of the ego is the only spiritual goal, whatever way we may try. With Brahmakara Vritti, what we are doing, we are trying to develop a new type of mental contemplation that I am not the body, not the mind, not the senses. I am the Atman. So this vritti is hammering the ego. And when you succeed to get rid of the ego, that realization comes in a flash because all everything falls off once for all. It never happens one by one. Generally, we have the idea 
that we have to get rid of the desires one by one. Yes, any desire which is disturbing me for the time being, it's a short-term relief. I have to take care of it. I have to get rid, get rid of it. In India, when we used to do relief for flood relief, there are two types of relief. One is the distress relief that is long-term and one is the short-term. Suppose a flood-prone area gets flooded. I go immediately with food, uh, with clothings, try to bring them to some shelter where, where they can uh, stay till the water subsides. So all those are the immediate temporary relief. But I know that that area is prone to flood. Every year the flood is there. So I have to do something permanent there. How? Yes, we take a project of that in that village to construct houses on pillars. The ground floor will be empty. There won't be any housing there. It's just pillars. So with the stairs, you go up in the second floor, the rooms are there. So that even if the flood is there, you don't get flooded. The school building, the other buildings, they are also made in that in the same way that they should have a hall where all if anyone who is poor, who cannot manage to have that type of house, at least for them, that shelter should be there. Very interesting. Where we were involved with such so many such projects. If you go to this village where we have done all those distress relief, in the Indian villages, there is some hand uh, tube, this tube, uh, tube well. With, a, with hand, you have to get the underground water. And now, this tube well is not in the ground level. They have created a uh, upraised structure, a platform, which where you have to get up by the stairs. And the tube well is there. And you may just think that why uh, you, have, you have to have a, such a platform, like something like stage, where you have to just climb up by the, uh, you have to climb up the stairs to get the water. Actually, as it is a flood prone area, when the flood is there, water is everywhere, but you don't get drinking water. All the water is polluted. So there, the platform has been oppressed. So even when the, water, the village is flooded, they can still have access to the drinking water. So this speaks of the long-term effect. Similarly, in our spiritual life, when I find that I am being assailed by a particular inordinate attachment, like one who is a smoker, of course, willfully, he has to try to get rid of that smoking. But that is, But that doesn't entail mukti. There are so many other desires which is binding me. As Sri Ramakrishna used to say very nice that in those days uh, across the Ganges, there was the Howrah Bridge was not built at the time of Ramakrishna. So how they used to cross the river Ganges, there used to be floating bridge. Lots of boats were all tied together and they were all uh, tied with some anchor on the shores, both the sides. All the boats were uh, tied with innumerable such ropes. Seeing that Sri Ramakrishna used to say, you just, even if one rope you cut, still the bridge is intact because there are so many other ropes to keep it in place. Similar is our desires, like those innumerable ropes. It is holding onto a personality. So how to go beyond that? Get rid of the hub. All the spikes falls off once at a time. So how it can be done? By constantly negating the idea that you are the, this, 
body-mind complex. That I am not the body, not the mind, not the senses. I am the Atman. I am Brahman. So that's what the path of Jnana. And what's the path of Bhakti? It's very similar. When I think of God, now yes, most of us are devotees in a very crude sense. For us, the devotion is actually a type of materialism. What's that materialism? Where God is the means, world is the end. That is sheer materialism. That is not devotion. That we don't want God. I want good uh, job. I want uh, money. I want uh, good health. For this, all these are worldly goals. For that, God is just the means. World is the end. That is not devotion. That type of devotion, Sri Ramakrishna is not speaking. What's the real devotion? As we find in all the religions, the real devotion has been spoken very nicely. You'll find in Bible by Jesus. Worship the spirit by the spirit. When I am trying to contemplate on the divine, what's the idea? That I am not this body-mind complex. I am the soul which was, which is, which will be. And as a devotee, I of course think that it is not one with God. God is the soul of my soul and he is also infinite. And that eternal relation between the my soul and the Paramatma, Atma and the Paramatma is what I desire. So there also we will find through devotion, actually we are negating the idea that I am the psychophysical existence. The one who prays for worldly goals, for them, he's saturating, condensing the ego because he's taking the ego to be real. Because with ego, all those desires are related. So that won't help us to evolve spiritually, though it may help us to gain uh, materially as per the worldly prosperities because it may help. But spiritually, the attitude, the devotion which Sri Ramakrishna is speaking of is different. That I am the spirit. God is the spirit of my spirit, the soul of my soul. So worship the spirit by the spirit. So that's the real devotion. So where I am relating to my real nature, not as this body-mind complex, as the soul. So is there any difference between the so-called knowledge and bhakti? Though you may say, yes, I am not identifying with myself with the ultimate reality. But does it make really, really any difference as per the obliteration of the ego is concerned? No difference. In both, the result is you're hammering the ego. In whatever way you do it, that will lead to the ultimate realization. So that's why now you just relate to the words of Ramakrishna. How nicely, plainly is saying the path of knowledge leads to truth as does the path that combines knowledge and love. This is important, knowledge and love. The mere devotion when, even in Bhagavatam it has been said, the gopis when they were in love with Krishna, they never forgot that he is the divine, he is the God. If they would have forgotten, it would have been just like the love of uh, a woman for his, uh, what you say that, it is an extramarital love, you can say. It's something love, it's illicit love. It would have been just like that. So the idea was there that he is the God, he is the spirit. I am the spirit. This 
love, this devotion is something eternal. It is not something which is just related to our psychophysical existence. So that is the knowledge behind the love. Then only that love can lead us to the same goal. So this jnana misrita bhakti, the path of love too leads to this goal. So that's the thing Sri Ramakrishna is saying this, this love when you have that jnana behind it, it has the same effect of in as per the obliteration of the ego is concerned. So that's why he's saying here that once it is mixed with knowledge, then the way of love is as true as the way of knowledge. All paths ultimately lead to the same truth. But what's the thing which is not allowing us to go to the truth? But as long as God keeps the feeling of ego in us, it is easier to follow the path of love. Because in the beginning, in the last class, we were saying that especially in the present age, to practice Aham Brahmasmi, I have to detach myself from the world and negate all the perceptions, perceptual knowledge, all the sensual interactions which I am having, which is not possible in the present age. To sustain myself, I have to have some work, and that work keeps me engaged throughout the day. So here, the spiritual practice should be bhakti. Jnana Misrita Bhakti, that God has kept me in the present situation. Even in the Bhagavad Gita class, the same thing we were saying, seek not, avoid not. God has given me the faculties with which the responsibilities which I'm supposed to do, I do. I do with, based on the idea that I have to do as per the performance is concerned, I have to do it perfectly. But at the same time, the goal, again, I am not hankering. After all, because I am the instrument of the divine. I am just, uh, with all the faculties which he has given me, I am trying to do his work to the perfection, and there it ends. So, in this type of bhakti, the karma is also involved. So, actually, though we say karma, jnana, bhakti, three paths, but they are all intertwined. You cannot, as such, segregate them separately and say into watertight compartments and say, this is jnana, this is bhakti, and this is karma. If we are pursuing any path with sincerity and in a, with proper orientation, all the three has to synthesize in some way or other. Though one may be predominant, but other factors has to be there if we are sincerely following the path. So that's what Sri Ramakrishna is indicating. So let's now proceed to the next discussion. With Sri Ramakrishna's words, the Vigyani says that Brahman is immovable and actionless. Like Mount Sumeru, the universe consists of the three guna, Sattva, Raja, Tama. They are in Brahman, but Brahman is unattached. So these are the words we are hearing from our childhood and without knowing the meaning, we repeat it. Sattva, Raja, Tama. We say Sattva, Raja, Tama. These are the three gunas which constitutes the entire universe. That's what the scriptures say. And now if I say, just explain how Sattva, Rajas and Tamas constitute the entire universe. We will have to fix do you know that the definition, by definition, sattva means illumination, rajas means action, tamas means darkness. Now I say this, how illumination, action and the darkness 
constitutes the entire universe, again, we will be in a fix. What actually it means? Now, to translate it in the modern, uh, uh, what is a scientific language, if I say Sattva Raja Samas is nothing but uh, stimuli response conditioning, you may be a bit surprised. What, uh, what, is, what do you mean? Sattva Raja Samas means stimuli response conditioning? It's nothing but stimuli response conditioning. And the entire universe, our universe, is nothing but the stimuli response conditioning. Does a, a small a piece of stone, inert stone, sees the universe? No. Does it react to the perceptions? No. It is inert. We react. This stimuli response conditioning is Sattva Rajasthama. Now let us try to understand how that Sattva illumination, Rajas, action and Tamas, darkness, actually speaking of the stimuli response conditioning. Now when I'm in deep sleep, do you see the universe? It's not there, it's not visible. I'm in deep sleep. Where the universe has gone, it is in my mind. When I wake up and I see a red flower, that example which we give, you can see anything just for the convenience of a red flower. The redness, the shape of the flower, the smell, the fragrance, the texture, all these sensations were there in my mind. My mind is not vacant. If my mind was vacant, I could have never perceived. They were there, where? In tamas, in darkness. All those concepts of perception, all those were there in my mind where I'm in deep sleep. So all these piecemeal perceptions are tanmatras. They are tamas. Tanmatras means tatmatra. That these words itself are so, uh, in, in, in Sanskrit, the way they have coined the words, if you understand that, there's a huge philosophy behind it. Just see, when I'm perceiving a red flower, I think that I that entire perception as a whole happens. That there is a red flower outside. I see the red flower somewhere in my brain. The red flower is as if uh, reflected, and I see no. The redness is perceived in some uh, center. The shape of the flower is in another center. The fragrance in smells perception center. The texture in some other wherever I can touch, uh, having a sense of touch. There I can have the texture and they all synthesize to give you a picture of the red flower as a whole with a wonderful fragrance. But the perceptions are having piecemeal. All these piecemeal perceptions, till I woke up and saw the flower, they were all also lying dormant. They were all tamas. That's why now you will understand tanmatra, those piecemeal perceptions, tatmatra. Only the redness, tatmatra, only the fragrance, only the uh, texture, only the shape. That's the tatmatra. That's tanmatra. Tanmatra doesn't mean subatomic particles. Many will be translating as subatomic particles. It is all those piecemeal perceptions in the form of concepts that's there in my mind. Unless I see it, unless I perceive it, they are there lying dormant. That's why they are all tamas. Now you can. Read it with the scripture. They say Tanmatra, Panchabhuta are Tamas. As long as the perception is not happening, these piecemeal perceptions, and once they conglomerate to form a whole, all these things are all hidden. They're still lying dormant. So that's why they are all Tamas. 
Now what is sattva? When I wake up, see the red flower, open the eyes, then and you will find that now you can relate. In the scripture, they say all the three gunas are constantly mutating. Tamas is becoming sattva, sattva is becoming rajas. They are mutating. It's not that they are three different uh, braids of the, you know, that the woman will be having the braids of the hair in which they will have two or three braids tie, means intertwined together. So many things, gunas are like that. No, they're not like watertight compartments intertwined. They're constantly mutating. One is becoming the other. How tamas becomes sattva? The moment you open your eyes, you wake up, look outside, look at the flower. What is happening? All those dormant perceptions, piecemeal perceptions, they get illumined. The outside world is a suggestion to activate them. So this speaks of illumination. So that's why you will find in our scripture, they say that our organs of perception, Gyanendriyas are pure sattva. Mind is a mixture of sattva rajastamas, but organs of perception are pure sattva because you cannot do any action with them, but it can illumine. So all the tamas, which was in the mind, that gets illumined. How, how it is happening through the organs of perception. So that's why they are pure sattva. They cannot do any action. After seeing the flower, now as per my inclination, my temperament, if I'm a devotee, I may go out, pluck the flower and offer it in the altar. So this speaks of rajas, action. That's why they say the organs, karmendriyas, the organs of action are pure rajas. The mind is a mixture of sattva rajas tamas, but its organs of actions are pure rajas. Vishuddha raja. Or Gyanendriya is Vishuddha sattva. So now you will understand. So just what is happening? The, all those ideas which were dormant in your mind, the moment the outside world is there to act as a suggestion that tamas is becoming sattva and that sattva as per your inclination is becoming rajas. You are responding to it in a particular way. If you are a devotee, you bring the flower, pluck the flower, bring it and offer it to the divine in the altar. Or if you are just a uh, lover of flower, you want to make a nice vase and keeping in the dining table. So these are all responses. So now just think what's the difference between a inert stone and you? The stimulus response conditioning. Is the world existing for the stone? No. It doesn't know that the world exists, it's inert. I know. How? Because of this interaction of the sattva rajas tamas. The moment we start responding to the stimuli, that speaks of life. That speaks of perception. And that creates the universe. Unless you can respond to a stimuli, there's no universe for you. That's why in the scripture they say, the one who is behind within me is mahato mahiya, is greater than the greatest. The astronauts say when we go, go to the space and look at the earth, the idea comes that in the universe it is just a dot. We are so insignificant. But another way of thinking is there. Yes, we are so insignificant. But think that we who are crawling like an ant or like a small insect on the surface of this earth, in space, we are so insignificant. But that within that insignificant thing, there is something which looks at the sun and say, oh, it is such a huge celestial body. The galaxies, the stars, the planets, the moons. Very interesting. Does the sun know it is big? 
Sun needs this, this me, the small ant-like creature moving on the earth's surface. Sun needs my certificate. It needs my certificate to prove that it is great. It itself doesn't know. The moment I certify, it becomes great. So that's the wonderful thing. That that's why it is being the one who is within me is Mahato Mahiyan, greater than the greatest. In space, we may be infinitely small. But when we are this pursuing the universe, that the thing who is there, he is giving the greatness to all the things. The one who is there. So just see and how it is happening, all because of the stimuli response conditioning, nothing else. This sat, now you will understand how the interplay of the Sattva Rajas Tamas is creating this universe. In Sanskrit, the words are very interesting. They say the universe is prapancha. Prapancha. The word prapancha, again, uh, nowadays they say that if you want to learn the philosophy of a particular race, learn his language. In language lies the philosophy. Let's just see the words are so important. Prapancha, how the word came? That our rishis knew that these five senses intermingle to create this universe. Nothing is there. Even when you are looking through the telescope, it is, it is extending your senses. It is not taking you beyond the senses. It is just extension. It is after all the intermingling of these five senses. The eyes, the ears, the nose, the taste and the touch. Nothing else is there for us beyond this. The, it is the mixing, the hodgepodge, the potpourri, the mixing of this. Five senses is the universe. That's why pra pancha, prakrishta rupena pancha, these five gets intermingled. It becomes a khichdi to make this universe. Just see the, how beautiful those words are. And how and these five senses again speaks of what? This, this five again boils down to three. That is sattva rajasthamas. When any type of perception is happening, it is sattva. And it is leading to any action that is rajas. Till that perception has happened, that ideas behind the perception was there, hidden in my mind. So now, Brahman, the Vigyani sees in that infinite small creature who feels that he is something small in space as far as his body-mind complex is concerned. But the one who is peeping through the body-mind complex, he is immovable, actionless. The Vigyani sees that. Vigyani says that Brahman is immobile and actionless, like Mount Sumeru. Nothing can affect it. Mount Sumeru, why? That Mount Sumeru is considered as a pole, means the world is revolving. So when anything is revolving, you need something uh, which as the, uh, what you say, the reference uh, around which everything is revolving, the pole you require. So in our scriptures, they say that Mount Sumeru is a pole, which is not moving. Everything is moving around it. So that's why the Mount Sumeru, it is um, immovable. Nothing can affect as the examples we were giving that the huge reservoir which you see as a mirage cannot drench a single sand particle. So that way the sand particle is Sumeru, immovable. It cannot be drenched. So the real self who is enjoying this vision because of the interaction of the Sattva Rajas Tamas is the one who is enjoying the world of this virtual reality. He's wearing the glasses to enjoy this world of virtual reality. So the universe consists of the three gunas. But the Brahman is immovable, actionless. Through the mind and the senses, 
that Brahman is enjoying this universe, that the Vijnanis is. That's, that's why he's unaffected, because he knows it's just a mere projection. So let's see these words are so poignant, the simple words, but behind that, the entire philosophy lies. You can go on discussing, just not taking one line, two line. They're like sutras. They are in Brahman, but Brahman is unattached. So from the Brahman, when you are in deep sleep, from that you wake up. So the self, through the mind and senses, is interacting with the world. And from where the mind and senses came? From the self. Because when you go to the realization, then you find there is nothing but the self. So from that, the idea comes. It must be because of ignorance that the self is appearing as this phenomenal existence, as my body-mind senses. Otherwise, why at the realization, everything merges in that. So how it came, I don't know. Just the way when the dream, you, the, you get, wake up from the dream, you know you were dreaming. But can you ever say when the dream started? Why you started, when started, you can never say. Similarly, ignorance is anadi. But it, it has an end. It is not ananta. The dream breaks. And then you know. Just the way I cannot say how the dream started, why it started. Similarly, this Ajnana, we can never just decipher how the perfect became imperfect. But the dream breaks. There are here, these Vijnanis are the one for whom the dream has broken. They say it's what I am saying is just a mere projection. How it happened, that how we came to this dreaming state, we don't know. But when it's break, it knows that all the things I was seeing in the dream was in no way, the nightmare which I was having, is it in any way affecting the real me? No. They were just like nightmares, nothing else. So in the dream, whatever I have seen, in no way is affecting the real me. So that's the thing is being, is being indicated here. That they are in Brahman, but Brahman is untouched. Nothing affects it. The Vijnani far, further sees that what is Brahman is the Bhagavan, the personal God, who, he, who is beyond the three gunas, is the Bhagavan with his six supernatural powers. So these six supernatural powers, we again read. But sometimes like, uh, like knowledge which we have memorized, like it's, a, it's like, a, like a rote, we have just memorized it. We say, and what are they? Wealth, valor, fame, beauty, knowledge, renunciation. There's a sloka which speaks of Bhagavan. Aishwarya, sorry. Aishwaryasya samagrasya, viryasya yashasasriya, jnana vairagyayoschaiva, shannang bhaga itingana. This, this, the one who has six bhagas is Bhagavan. Six bhaga means six treasures. Bhaga means treasure, attributes. What are the six treasures? Wealth, valor, fame. Wealth is Aishwarya. Valor is virya, you have tremendous valor, strength, fame. That speaks of yasha, beauty, sriya, knowledge, jnana, and vairagya's renunciation. Actually speaking the same thing. The one, when the Brahman, the Vijnani sees that, when the, that what he sees is the Brahman through the mind and senses is being projected as the universe. Once he knows that, what he knows? That the, the when the you when the universe is being projected, the collective intelligence, the collective mind, which we 
think as the Ishwara. It has the six treasures. What are the six treasures? Aishwarya. Why is Aishwarya? When you know it's a Brahman who is being projected as the universe, is there anything, all the things I am saying, is there anything apart from that which the Brahman doesn't own? He's a God who has been projected as the entire thing. So there is nothing which he doesn't own. So is there anyone who can be more wealthy than him? Because everything is, he is the owner. So just see, it is not the ordinary worldly wealth we are speaking of. It has that spiritual intolation. The entire creation is projected from Ishwara. When Brahmana becomes associated with the collective mind, it appears as this universe. So the entire universe is his wealth. So he's the wealthiest person. That's why he's Ishwara. That's why he's Bhagawan. One, valor. The valor means, you can say, that the, the power. You need strength, valor, media. From where it comes, again, the same Brahman who is inactive and, and finds expression as a phenomenal world, he finds expression as energy, just like a, what is an iron bar, a magnet piece of magnet. When it is an iron bar, what has happened? It has the potentiality to become a magnet. Why it is not a magnet? Because iron bar has an innumerable magnetic dipoles, which are all scattered. That's the basic science we have studied. So as the dipoles are all scattered, so the net magnetic field is zero because one is balancing the other. It's very interesting as the rishis contemplated on Brahman, that's why they could uh, conceptualize the a digit called zero. No one else could have conceptualized. It is from India, the concept of zero came. Why it came? Because we contemplated on Brahman. You know, say how it is related? Zero doesn't mean nothingness. Zero means balance. When one thing negates the same thing, it becomes zero. Four minus four, zero. Same quantity negating the same quantity is zero. One thing is balancing the other. So what happened? The same Brahman who appears to be inert, when he finds expression as a phenomenal existence, it is a, all the strength, the energy, the power, finds expression from that state of inert, just like the way that that iron bar if somehow I can align all the magnetic dipoles in such a way that all the north poles are in one direction and the south poles are in another direction, what will happen? Immediately the thing which was appearing to be of having no uh, as such magnetism, immediately I find the magnetic forces are working. If I put some iron filings, they will be drawn towards it. So where was it? It was hidden potentially in the iron. So all the energy which I see in the universe is in potential in Brahman. This Brahman finds expression as valor, as a rim. The Vachaka rim is expressed, is uh, there to signify energy. Om is the ultimate Brahman. He finds expression as rim, the energy. And that energy again when finds expression in the universe, it's not everywhere it's the same. I find someone is more intelligent, someone has more strength, someone has a tremendous capacity of uh, this performing arts, 
So in various way, this strength is manifesting in varied ways. And that also intensity, there is some, some, somewhere it is of greater intensity, somewhere it is lower intensity. Just think that the same sun, in your house you have two uh, curtains. One curtain is just, uh, is just with translucent. Means to get the light in, but nothing should be visible from outside. So something like net, one curtain is there. When that curtain is there, sunlight is still visible. So sun is so the same sun is more manifested. But over that, if I just turn a thick, if I just pull a thick curtain, nothing is visible. So the sun is still there. But because of ignorance, because of the covering, somewhere it is more manifested, somewhere it is less manifested. So that's why the Vibhuti speaks of that, that he, the one, the Ishwara, the collective intelligence, he is the one who as such doesn't have ignorance. He knows that it is the Brahman through the cosmic mind is finding expression as the universe. So there is no covering at all. So the entire Vibhuti is finding expression through him. So in our day-to-day life, to whom the fame, who is uh, having more fame, the one who has vibhuti, the one who can sing well, one who can, who is intelligent, the one who has skills, these are the vibhutis. In Bhagavad Gita, the vibhuti yoga speaks of that, the best among men in various fields. So it speaks of the more and more manifestation, but that maximum manifestation is possible in Ishwara, where the ignorance is not there at all. So his is the fame, his is the beauty. Beauty lies in rhythm. Wherever there is rhythm, in chaos there is no beauty. Now you will find that, that the example which we gave, when the, mag- when the iron became a magnet, I found some force is, act- is acting. It is pulling the iron filings. But you will find if you just throw the iron filings, they will take a particular pattern. This speaks of the strength is following certain laws. The entire universe is rhythmic. As in the words of Einstein, uh, that the most incomprehensible fact of the universe is that it is comprehensible. It's a very, very poignant statement, very significant, that I as a human being sitting here can launch a satellite which can do soft landing on the Mars. How is it possible? I know. The gravitation laws which works here, the same gravitation laws work there. It is that uniform. That's why the huge universe was supposed to be incomprehensible. But as a human being, we can comprehend the stars, the planets, the galaxy, what type of uh, this, uh, what you say that uh, your um, uh, various type of waves signifies what? All those things we can calculate to the accuracy because the universe is so rhythmic. That speaks of the beauty. It is not chaotic. And that's why this Sri has been spoken of. It speaks of the rhythm, Om, the Brahman. Om speaks of the Brahman, which finds the expression as Rim, the Shakti. And that Shakti is again not chaotic. It follows certain rhythms, certain laws. And that is rhythm. From the Sanskrit word rhythm, the English word rhythm came. In many of the English words, you will find the root is in Sanskrit. The languages are not that segregated. 
rhythm, rhythm. There are so many Sanskrit words which that we say, we think that English is totally segregated from Sanskrit. Not at all. Pita, father, mata, mother, brata, brother, swasa, sister, atithi, guest. You may say, no, these two are not same, but uh, etymologically both are same. Atithi and guest. Guest, uh, atithi means what? The one who ha- whose coming has no tithi. In the olden days, you, you are supposed to accept the guest anytime. Most probably you have taken your meals, you are about to take rest, someone comes, you are supposed to wake up and attend him as if he is a God who has come to your door. So he has no time, anytime he may come. That's why he's a tithi, anytime he may come. Now you say how, how it is etymologically related with guest. Same meaning. Suppose someone comes and knocks your door, you open. And most probably you haven't seen him for years. He's not a stranger. Previously you knew him, but now for many years you have not seen him. That the one who knocked the door, he immediately guesses that you couldn't recognize him properly. So he asks you, guess who? And you give an intent look and then say, guest. So you can understand what is, who is guest. He's also Atithi. He's also. So these are the etymological the languages are so intertwined. So why I'm just saying this, that this all this Rhythm is rhythm that speaks of the Sri Jnana, the one who is projected as the universe. He knows the all the things from the thing from which he is being projected. All the knowledge in general and in specific is in him, because from him it has been projected. So he is the omniscient being. At the same time, he is not affected in any way by the projection, as we were saying. The sand particle can never be get drenched by the reservoir, which is appearing as the mirage. So nothing can touch it. So the word Vairagya comes there. So now you will find, nowadays many person, a rich person, uh, someone have many devotees and sits in Singhasana and declares him to be Bhagawan, taking these words as wealth, valor, fame, beauty in uh, worldly sense. And he sits in a throne and uh, declares that I am the Bhagawan sitting in golden throne. It doesn't mean that. It has its own its philosophical intonation. If we don't understand the scriptures, we can deceive others by becoming a false guru, and there will be others to follow him, uh, to follow him by totally being befooled by such false guru. This Bhagavan doesn't mean sitting in a golden throne and just declaring himself as Bhagavan. Uh, that it does has nothing to do with this uh, worldly wealth valor. It, in that spiritual sense, you have to understand what this wealth, valor, fame, beauty, knowledge, renunciation means. It's the same Brahman which is finding expression as this universe. It finds then all these things, all these attributes finds expression through that, through that Brahman only. So that's why he is now the Bhagavan. So that's the idea which has been spoken of. Sri so Ramakrishna is speaking, the Vigyani further sees that the Brahman is the Bhagavan. Now you will understand that how Brahman is the Bhagavan, the personal God. He who is beyond the three gunas is the Bhagavan with his six supernatural powers. So let us stop this discussion. These discussions are wonderful. It means in the words of Sri Ramakrishna, again and again we are saying the entire Ved Vedantas are encrypted. That's why Swami Vivekananda Veni says that the Ramakrishna's words have transcended the Vedas and Vedanta. He is not exaggerating. It is only our limitation in understanding and we think it to be too simple, too simple because 
we with our limited understanding cannot relate. That's why we always say we have to go on reading the gospel. As we evolve, layers of meaning will come out from the simple words. The entire scripture is encrypted. A man of realization when he's speaking, he can speak in such a simple language. It just flows from his realization. But the more we contemplate, the more we find the beauty out of it. And that's why we study the gospel. And we'll continue to study in the next week again. So with this, we uh, just uh, conclude our discussion today. Thank you all. Namaskars.